what are the seeds that bring you to spiritual practice? What are the seeds that brought you to a retreat like this particular one? So beginning our evening with a few questions, some of which have probably visited your mind and heart. These questions that humans have felt and have asked forever, regardless of culture, regardless of history, these murmurings of the heart, the deep questions and yearnings that have been going on in us as long as there have been human beings. The title of this evening's talk is Spiritual Urgency, Samvega. What is life about? What is death, its significance, its meaning? Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What do I need to be truly happy and at ease in this life? Can I or how can I live gracefully, peacefully in this life with all of the challenges and difficulties in this changing world? with all of the challenges and difficulties within me and all around me. What is it that brings me to practice? And again, why am I, why are you here in retreat right now? Our practice isn't about getting caught up and mulling or stewing over these questions. But rather these questions can be taken in as a motivating force and an inspiration towards connecting to and dropping more and more deeply into our practice. So this evening's talk is about an urgency to awaken. And the Pali term for this is Samvega, which I actually think it's pronounced Samvega, <laughs> which is most often translated into English as spiritual urgency. But actually, this term is somewhat difficult to render into English because it includes quite a number of different states of mind. In the classical Buddhist texts, the force or the energy of Sambhuega is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice. And the classical text goes on to say that Sambhuega is also about one being moved to a sense of urgency, urgency within practice itself by what should move one, followed by the systematic effort of one so moved. So Sambhuega is the urgency to practice and an urgency to awaken. And I think it's important to note at this point It's an energy that's not at all fraught with any tense or any frantic sense or any obsessive quality. But rather it's a a quality of mind, a quality of heart that often comes out of some degree of understanding of the natural laws, of the way of things some degree of understanding how it is. So let's take a look at this for a few moments. For some of you, Samvega may have been sensed or maybe first felt 
as the endlessness of the round and round in daily life. Others of you may have felt a certain urgency through some degree of the perception of change, the perception of anicca, impermanence, in sensing, seeing, and knowing mental and physical phenomena continuously arising and disappearing in its gross and maybe also in some of its subtler forms, and the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. Also, the death of someone close to us in our life can certainly move the heart towards an urgency to practice and to awaken. And for some of you, the sense of urgency, sense of sambhaga, might be experienced through feeling the enormity or maybe even the subtleties of the physical and mental hardships and challenges in life, the suffering from life from this particular perspective, in general in the big picture, or maybe more specifically through the various permutations of these experiences in your own life. For some, the urgency to practice and the urgency to awaken come from what might be a long, accustomed, or possibly a new sight in relationship to the mental pain felt in observing or directly experiencing bias or judgment or prejudice in relationship to race, or culture, or economic circumstances, or maybe gender, or age, or sexual preference. Along with any of these experiences and the accompanying mental pain, you may also have experienced a vague or maybe not so vague sense that it doesn't have to be this way that there's another way and an urge to move towards this potential other way. When Sambhaga first stirs us, it may be an emotional state that's somewhat difficult or maybe disturbing until it finds a clear and healthy direction to connect to. One of the wonderful attributes of the stirring energy of Samvega is that it itself has the power to move us in a clear and healthy way towards finding a wholesome direction to connect to. An important point to recognize and to acknowledge is that continuing all along the way of our practice. Samvega is an essential and motivating energy of successful practice. From my own experience, I would describe Samvega as an experience of being stirred and inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process with the various occurrences of aging being a very primary inspiration at this point and by phenomena that goes on in the world around me. Happenings that I may be directly involved with in some way or happenings that I'm just simply an observer of, such as the great misunderstandings and confusions that are currently going on in this world, and the often violent reactions that are perpetrated from all sides because of this. 
Sambhaga is really a movement of the heart, an inner response, both within our formal meditation practice as well as outside of our formal meditation times. And for me, it's the movement of my heart to let go deeper into my practice. It's really this flavor of Samvega that stirs and moves me again and again and again towards letting go, towards relinquishing the painful contraction, however strong or however subtle, of clinging to anything. When Sambhuega is present, it may sometimes be experienced as an ardency, an inspired heart-mind, a passion, if you will, for spiritual practice. Something that I'm sure at least some of you, if not all of you, have felt at times. And at least in part, what maybe has brought you here to this retreat. As a Dhamma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity in and with your practice moves and inspires me. And I think it's quite safe to say that this is true for all of the wonderful teachers that I've had the honor to teach with. And it's one of the wonderful aspects uh, for all of us here together right now. living in a practice community such as this, even if it's just for a short while. We move and we inspire each other to deeper and deeper levels of practice. <clears throat> so, even more specifically, from the perspective of Dhamma, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what along the way of our practice keeps urging us, keeps moving us towards sustaining and deepening our practice? There's a beautiful account of how Prince Siddhartha came face to face with what are called the four heavenly messengers. While being driven in his chariot through the royal city after all of his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. This account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphorical, considering that these four messengers, these four very common events of life, old age, sickness, death, and though not so common in our time and culture, the many and quite obvious truth seekers that were so much a part of the time and culture that Siddhartha grew up in. Maybe uh, this is not so just uh, metaphorical and symbolic as we have always been and will forever be these four aspects will for always and forever be undeniable aspects of life for all living beings. So considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides, he saw and experienced these very common aspects of life much more deeply than had ever occurred for him before. 
to such a degree that in fact he was urgently moved to leave the riches and ease and comfort of his existence to search for the true nature of life. He was profoundly touched during those few chariot rides by the overt physical and mental challenges and hardships, the suffering in life that he witnessed as he took in these four very common events of life. Siddhartha's story tells us that this young man was inspired and moved to be liberated, inspired and urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and the familiar habits of his life. And isn't it really the same case with us? That most of the time, with the many, many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own lives, both outwardly and inwardly, we've reacted. Reacted by ignoring them or by distracting ourselves in myriad ways by where and how we spend our time. We've reacted by what we do to various manifestations of our aging body. Or we've reacted by pretending or maybe believing that in fact something else is happening until somehow at least one of these messengers touches us so deeply that instead of reacting, we respond. And we respond, in fact, in a similar way as did Siddhartha by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth and wisdom. We're somehow stirred to, at some point, to walk a different path than constantly maybe feeling overrun with sadness, anguish, fear, or by being tightly contracted with feelings of attachment or anger or confusion in relationship to the natural occurrences of life. I mean, truly, aren't our closest surroundings full of stirring things? (coughs) Stirring in the sense of Zambuega. And if we don't generally perceive them as such, isn't it really because of our habits? The habits that in fact render our vision dull and our heart insensitive or reactive. And this can even happen in relationship to the Buddhist teachings. We may very well have encountered times of powerful intellectual, emotional, or spiritual stimulation in relationship to the teachings and practices. But at times, even this impetus can lose its freshness, its compelling force, as maybe some of you have experienced. So what's the remedy? The remedy for this is to constantly renew the freshness of the teachings and the practice by just simply turning to the fullness of life within us and around us. Which, if we look carefully, constantly illustrates what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths in ever new variations illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is, which, very simply put, is the lack of any thoroughly sustaining deep 
satisfaction in relationship to our expectations and the very natural unfolding regarding the round and round and constantly changing nature of life. And if we continue to look carefully into the fullness of life within us and surrounding us, we begin to sense and to see the cause, the origin of this unsatisfactoriness, this suffering, which is the second of the Four Noble Truths. Which again, put very simply, essentially is a clinging relationship to what can't be clung to. And the third Noble Truth, the truth that in fact there is a potential end to this suffering. There's a solution to the predicament. The solution being, again, simply put, to not cling, but rather to see things utterly clearly and simply be with them as they are. And the fourth truth being the way of putting the solution into effect via the path, the path of practice offered by the Buddha. That, in fact, each one of you are engaged in walking along at your own pace, right here, right now, in this very life and in this very retreat. And as any of you may have experienced, and sometimes maybe quite unexpectedly, a degree of understanding of one or more of these truths can show up. For instance, with what might be a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear, anger, grief, or yearning, or clinging, and the self-identification that's embedded in each of these habitual habitual reactive patterns. Or insight, wisdom might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long accustomed sight of maybe some manifestation of poverty or maybe a weeping child or in relationship to the distress of someone you regularly have some degree of contact with, or maybe in relationship to an unaccustomed connection with the physical or mental illness of a loved one, or one's own illness or bodily discomfort, or myriad other flavors of experience, of our experience. With any of these experiences having the power to startle us, meaning to promote a reflective response and to stir up a sense of urgency in our resolve to sincerely and deeply practice this path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Through seeing our own experiences of body and mind, directly, clearly, and more and more subtly, we might be stirred and moved by seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, selfless, and impersonal nature of things. Something that is, of course, very available to each of us all of the time. So, for instance, a moment or maybe successive moments of directly and deeply experiencing and knowing the constant changing nature of bodily sensations or mental states or a moment of knowing very clearly that it's all impersonal. It's all anatta, not self. Mental, 
and physical phenomena just absolutely naturally arising, changing, and passing according to myriad interconnected conditions. With these moments of sensing, seeing, and knowing, we're often (coughs) urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path, to go deeper towards the ending of suffering, or, depending on circumstances, to recommit to our practice. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday, ordinary, conditioned habits, to step out of our conditioned inertia. We all have many stories, many experiences that come out of our pursuit of a spiritual life. And of course, many stories within our life as a whole. Stories that in fact often exhibit this knowing and the manifestation of Samvega. And it's often part of what I hear from students during practice interviews. There are a number of wonderful stories and dialogues in the suttas telling uh, of the Buddha's disciples being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual urgency. And this stirring being done uh, by the Buddha himself or the stirring being done by one of the arhats, one of the enlightened disciples, or by one of the practicing devas. And for those of you that may not know, devas are beings whose practice has brought them to be dwelling for lengths of time, and sometimes long lengths of time, in beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened aren't yet enlightened. They're not yet completely free from suffering. There's a section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called The Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various woodland-dwelling devas approach certain bhikkhus, certain monks who are practicing in those woodland thickets. And so I'd like to share uh, a few of these encounters with you. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was uh, dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. And on this particular occasion, the bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for a day of practice. But all the while kept thinking thoughts of strong desire connected uh, with the householding life. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket having compassion for that bhikkhu, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached and and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outward. Remove man the desire for people, then you'll be happy, devoid of lust meaning not necessarily just sexual lust, but lust for things, for food, for various objects and various experiences. And the deva goes on. You must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you of the way of the good. Hard to cross indeed is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust, so a bhikkhu, a yogi, strenuous and mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. And that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired 
a sense of urgency. The next dialogue takes place shortly after the Buddha's Parinibbana, after his death. His closest attendant and cousin, Ananda, had been very strongly encouraged to attain full enlightenment, to attain arhantship, before the first Buddhist council was to convene, which was scheduled to begin during the next rains retreat. Ananda had gone to the uh, Kosala country and entered into a forest abode to meditate. But when the people in that area uh, found out that he was there, they continually came to him lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt that he had to constantly instruct them in the law of Anicca, in the law of impermanence. The forest-dwelling Deva, uh, who lived there, aware uh, that the upcoming Buddhist council could succeed only if Ananda attended as an arahant, came to provoke and inspire him to resume his meditation practice. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the venerable Ananda was excessively involved instructing lay people. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for the venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the Davis speaking. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart, meditate, Gotama. Now, because Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, he had the same family name of Gotama. So the Davis said, meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What, with all, what will all this hullabaloo do for you. And then Venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. I picked this uh, particular dialogue because though of course we're not in the same position as Ananda was, we are certainly quite, quite often caught up, quite seduced by the seeming necessity for us to engage in the hullabaloo of various circumstances, both externally and also internally, and neglect or maybe even lose our practice and instead go for these things, go for all of this hullabaloo. To me, this little verse really beautifully and very clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear. Not, of course, to the neglect of what needs to be attended to, but to know when we're seduced unnecessarily and maybe even inappropriately into the hullabaloo. And another verse. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhuni was dwelling at Vasali in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, an all-night party was being held in Vasali. Then that bhikkhuni, lamenting as she heard the clamor of instruments and gongs and music coming from Vasali, recited this verse. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhuni, desiring desiring her good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in her, approached her and addressed her in verse. And this is the Deva speaking. As you dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state. 
a forest dweller, subsisting on alms food, with few wishes, content. Many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those in heaven realms. Then that bhikkhuni, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next verse is regarding a bhikkhu who continued thinking thoughts of ill will and harming as well as potent thoughts of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods one day. And the deva who inhabited this same woodland out of compassion and wishing to stir up Sambhaga in him spoke these verses to this bhikkhu. Because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, and this meaning having relinquished or let go of attending to things as permanent, as self, and as desirable because they're pleasurable, having relinquished the careless way, you should reflect carefully, meaning attending to their true nature, their true characteristics with a very careful attention. In Pali, the uh, word is yanisomanisikara, having atten- and t- attending to things as impermanent, not self, and thus unsatisfactory in nature. And then the Deva goes on to say, by basing your thoughts on the teacher, and in this case, the teacher was the Buddha, basing your thoughts on the teacher, on the Dhamma, on the Sangha, and on your own virtues, you will certainly attain to gladness and rapture (coughs) and happiness as well. And then, when you're suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. Then the bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The last verse that I'd like to share with you is about a bhikkhu who, after returning from alms round and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, this bhikkhu would go down uh, to a nearby pond and he would sniff a red lotus. When the deva who lived in that same thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entering into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So, out of compassion and wishing to stir up an urgency for the monk to practice with more diligence, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows. And the uh, title of this uh, little sutta is called The Thief of Scent. And this is the deva speaking. When you sniff this lotus, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds, I do not take, I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I'm a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is this one not spoken to? And the deva responds, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to that one, but it is to you I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu responds, Surely, spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. 
Please, O Spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the Deva responds. When I first read this, this was quite a surprise response. The Deva says, We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, Bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So it seems that amongst those of us then and now, those who over 2,500 years ago were devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha, and those of us right here and now, it seems that things haven't changed very much. Our human predicament crosses time and cultures. The teachings really are timeless. The solution that the Buddha offers to our karmic predicament is as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were originally spoken. When Sambhaga is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy, virya in Pali, and courage. That helps the development and the blossoming of faith, sada in Pali, and confidence, pasada in Pali. Each of these qualities, energy, courage, faith, and confidence, are essential in helping us to break through for what some of you might be some degree of timidity or hesitation, or maybe fear, or maybe doubt, or maybe even some degree of complacency. The Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his followers to arouse some vega. And in speaking to a group of disciples in one sutta, he says, Rouse yourselves. Sit up. What good is there in sleeping? Meaning the sleep of ignorance, the sleep of delusion. For those afflicted by disease, or meaning the dis-ease of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction. For those afflicted by dis-ease, struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there? Rouse yourselves, sit up, resolutely train yourselves to attain peace. And he goes on, go beyond to this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors to which humans and most devas are attached and which they seek. Do not waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of suffering, confusion, and anguish. And he goes on. Negligence is a taint, and so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream. Keeping one foot out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency. The Buddha was so confident in the solution he found to the predicament of the unsatisfactory round, the cycle of 
birth, aging, and death, which is actually occurring moment to moment to moment in our life, breath by breath. That not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, we're also asked to engage in a moment to moment observation of the cycle and to be completely honest with ourselves in the process. The Buddha's confidence was so clear and so strong that he called the reality of this unsatisfactory round the first noble truth, which, from this perspective, we could say is a gift, a gift that confirms some of our most sensitive and direct experiences of things. And then from the gift of this first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering, it's not out there. It's not coming from some outside experience or some outside over there being. But it's coming from in here in the craving and clinging and fear that's present in our own mind. And then the Buddha, in his great confidence, coming directly from his own experience and often using himself as an example, confirms that there's an end to suffering, that there's a very available release from the cycle and offers us a way to that release by the development of particular noble qualities of mind, noble qualities of heart, moral, ethical responsibility, sila, concentration, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, balanced energy, joy and happiness, tranquility, equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, faith, confidence. All of these qualities and capacities really sprouting out of the original energy of spiritual urgency, sambhaga, that led us at one point to look for a solution to our predicament. So our predicament has a very practical solution. A solution that's, in fact, within the power of every human being. A solution that all of you here have begun to have a growing faith in. Possibly in part through reading and studying the many stories the many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. But really, most importantly, that you've come to know out of your own direct experience through your own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates Samvega and is also the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows, as it develops and as it deepens, for many of us, it, in a sense, is what gives us the energy to live. The last story that I'd like to share with you this evening is maybe a somewhat unlikely one uh, from the contemporary writer Annie Dillard. And it's a story that um, I've found to be very inspiring and that invoked a spiritual urgency in me the first time that I read it uh, many years ago. 
and that continues to move me every time I read it. And this afternoon when I was uh, going over my talk, I was again very moved by this story of Annie Dillard's. So these are a few excerpts uh, from a chapter from Annie Dillard's book called Teaching a Stone to Talk. And this particular chapter is called Living Like Weasels. Last week I startled a weasel who startled me and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I'd never seen one wild before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruit wood, soft furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into stillness as he was emerging from beneath the enormous shaggy wild rose bush four feet away. I was stunned into stillness twisted backward on the tree trunk. Our eyes locked, and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else. A clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain, or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs, it felled the forest, moved the the fields, and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. That was only last week, and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing, and the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data and my spirit with pleading, but he didn't return. I tell you, I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds, and he was in mine. Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes, but the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular, but I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity and we live in choice hating necessity, and dying at last, ignobly, in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with the fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked, and ingested directly, like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, even of silence, by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as it's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you, then even death where you're going no matter how you live, 
cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds and let your very bones unhinge and scattered, loosened over field, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to learn or remember how to live. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. In, in light of Samhuega, it feels appropriate to share uh, some of the Buddha's last words just before his death. Words that he offered to his monastic and lay disciples to instill a sense of Samhuega in them, to exhort them to keep going along the path. And this particular uh, quote is from a somewhat expanded version of these words that comes from the Tibetan translation of the Parinibbana Sutta that I've actually found to be quite inspiring. And these, this is that. O bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent, are of a nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious. Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether moving or not moving, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. I'm about to cross over. This is my final teaching. And in in closing the evening's talk, we come right back around to our opening questions. And as the poet uh, Mary Oliver, in her own way, poses them in her poem called A Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me. What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life?
and let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.